All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, we will go ahead and get started with our Galatians class in just a minute here. Uh, in the meantime, there are handouts in the back, so if you haven't had a chance to grab notes yet, uh, you might want to go ahead and do so now. And also just go ahead and take a moment again to remind everyone that uh, if, you're, if you're on the loop, if you know how to use the loop, um, the, all the notes from this class, everything that I ever put back there is also available electronically on the loop. And uh, so if you don't uh, get it now or if you just prefer to have an electronic version, uh, you can find that there. Um, please also take a minute either now or at the end of the class before you leave to uh, sign in uh, for Sunday school. Um, okay, so uh, we will be in Galatians 2 today, and in a minute I'll go ahead and uh, get us started there, but um, first let me go ahead and open us up in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together and uh, to learn from your word, and uh, we ask this morning that you would Grant us your guidance, the guidance of your Holy Spirit, as we read your word together, as we seek to understand it, as we seek to understand you better through your word. And we ask that uh, you would um, plant the truth of your word deep in our hearts this morning, that it would transform us, and uh, that we would uh, not only be impacted by the truth of your word, but that you would also uh, help us to discover what it means uh, to live anew in light of your word and what it tells us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, okay, so um, we'll be picking up here in Galatians 2, and uh, before I, two, two primarily will be in 2.15 through 21 today, which is really the heart of the entire letter. If Paul has a thesis statement in this letter, it is chapter 2, verse 16, um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, before I jump directly into that, I want to just recap briefly what, a little bit of what we've said in previous weeks. Uh, so just to say by way of reminder, um, Paul writes this letter to respond to a situation in which false missionaries uh, have come to the Galatians behind him, and they're leading them astray by teaching that they, Gentiles, must become Jewish or observe the Jewish law in order to be a part of God's family. Uh, in other words, they are saying that Christ alone, that what God has done in Christ alone is not enough. You must also be obedient to the law. You must also, in effect, become Jewish in order to be part of God's family. Um, and uh, this is what Paul is responding to, what he is combating. Uh, the main point of chapter 1 we saw that Paul emphasizes again and again in different ways is that the gospel is of divine and not human origin. And because the gospel is of divine and not human origin, it also operates on divine terms according to divine standards and not by human standards. And those terms, God's terms, are um, grace. That is, so the contrast that Paul sets up in chapter 1 is between God's grace and any kind of human standard or human criterion of measurement. And, uh, and so the gospel, Paul emphasizes, is by grace. In other words, it is a gift from God, um, given not on the basis of any human standard of worth. Um, 
In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we covered that last week. We saw uh, Paul explaining, rehearsing some of the narrative of how this whole controversy got started in the first place, where these false missionaries came from, and uh, how the whole controversy over whether or not one has to obey the Jewish law uh, started. And then in 2.11 through 14, we ended there last week, and that's where Paul zeroes in on this um, event that happened to Antioch when Peter uh, was visiting Antioch, and uh, Peter and Paul got into it a little bit over uh, Peter's hypocritical behavior there. And so before we jump straight into 2.15 through 21, I actually want to turn right back to those verses, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and take a second look at those verses because they provide all the context that we need to understand what Paul says in the next paragraph. So starting in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, but when Cephas, and again, that's Peter, uh, when, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before some people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself for fear of the circumcision party. In other words, these people who were saying that you must uh, become Jewish, must obey the Jewish law. Uh, and the rest of the Jews joined with him in this pretense, so that even Barnabas was carried away, carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not walking in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of everyone, if you, though you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it that you compel Gentiles to become Jews? Uh, so again, Part of, to break this down, what seems to have happened here at Antioch is that uh, when Peter first came to Antioch for this visit, it seems that he was happy to eat with the Gentiles. Um, he was happy to sort of dis, uh, disregard the food laws that uh, made it impossible for Jews to eat with Gentiles. He was happy to uh, set aside that distinction between Jew and Gentile um, that the law embodies. Uh, and, and this makes perfect sense. Um, Peter knows full well at this point that uh, the distinction between Jew and Gentile does not matter, but that God has extended his grace in Jesus Christ to everyone, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile. Uh, we see that clearly in uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. If you go back and read those verses, it's very clear that Peter is on board, that he knows that this distinction uh, does not matter. There are also passages in Acts where we can see Peter himself saying the same thing. Um, but it seems that when the circumcision party came, when these Jewish Christian missionaries came from Jerusalem, uh, he... Uh, he basically got scared. Um, he gave in to pressure. He withdraws out of fear, we read. In other words, Peter, uh, in a sense, chickens out. Um, and that might seem odd to us. Why would Peter, of all people, be scared of anyone else within the church, of these uh, Jewish Christian missionaries? Uh, he's Peter. Um, but I think you have to think of it a little bit in, in terms of... Um, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of uh, the fact that Peter uh, is part of an ethnic minority as a Jew, and uh, it can be a very uncomfortable thing, uh, it can be a very difficult thing uh, to feel like you were uh, on the outs with your own people. 
Um, so I don't think that this pressure that Peter feels comes so much from the fact that these people have any authority, any official authority within the church that he doesn't have. Um, I think it comes from the fact that it's an uncomfortable thing to be on the outs with your own people. Um, anyway, that seems to be what happens here. We, he withdraws out of fear, but the problem is that in doing so, he has just sent a message to every Gentile present there in Antioch, every Gentile Christian present, that actually the food laws and so also the distinction between Jew and Gentile does matter after all. It really does determine who has status before God and who gets to belong to God's family and who does not after all. That's the implicit message that Peter has sent through his actions, and that is what Paul is absolutely up in arms about uh, when we get to chapter 2, verse 14. And so, uh, slightly expanded translation here, um, Paul's question to Peter is, if you, though you are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, in other words, you don't observe the Torah food laws, how is it that you compel Gentiles to become Jews? And that is, by giving the impression that the food laws still matter. Uh, the question here is not simply, uh, the, the question here is, is not simply one of um, table fellowship uh, or, or simply one of um, food. Um, the question here is whether God's gift of Jesus Christ for our sins is enough for, any, for someone to be a part of God's family or whether one must also live like a Jew or become a Jew. It's possible to translate that phrase either way. Um, if, and, and what Paul's, Paul's greater underlying point here is that if you act like any human distinction whatsoever, not just the distinction between Jew and Gentile, that's just one particular example that we're dealing with, but if you act like any human distinction whatsoever matters, then you are implicitly saying that God's grace in Jesus Christ is not enough. And at that point, you are denying the gospel, as he says back in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, and we'll say again in 2.21 shortly. So, that's a, so, so this is the issue that we're dealing with, um, an absolutely core, pivotal issue um, uh, for, for the definition of the gospel, for, for early Christianity um, at this early stage in the church, um, is what God has done in Jesus Christ, is the gift of Jesus Christ for our sins alone enough for one to be part of God's family, or does it also take um, something else besides that, in this case being uh, living like a Jew? Um, and the greater issue behind that uh, Paul's greater point behind that is that if we say that any human distinction whatsoever matters um, as far as who gets to be a part of God's family, then we are actually denying the grace of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that is what brings us to the discussion of justification by faith in uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, uh, where we'll spend most of our time here. So uh, let me go ahead and read those verses for us. For we are Jews by birth and not, Gentile, and not sinners from the Gentiles. Yet because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since no one at all will be justified by works of the law. 
But if, while seeking to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also have also been found to be sinners, then is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I build up again the things I tore down, I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might be alive to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith, that is, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not reject God's gift, for if righteousness is by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Um, so this, as I said, is the very heart of this letter. Paul has been building up the whole narrative, uh, rehearsing the prior things that happened, the prior events and issues, has been building up to this point. Everything that he says throughout the rest of the letter for the next four chapters of Galatians will flow out of what he says here, working out the implications of what he says here. Uh, in these verses, uh, there's been some uh, discussion among scholars for, for a long time about uh, how best to read these verses. And I'll just say, I think these verses are best understood, 15 through 21, as, um, as, as a paraphrase of what Peter said to Paul, of, of Peter's, uh, or, no, sorry, the other way around, what Paul said to Peter. Um, I think these are best read as a paraphrase of Peter, of Paul's response to Peter, uh, following on that direct quotation in 2.14. In other words, I don't think this is, these verses are an exact quotation of what Paul said to Peter, but I think this is a summary um, of what Paul says to Peter. Uh, so, uh, and as we look at this, there's a lot, there's so much packed into these verses. I'm just going to say up front, not only is there a lot um, packed into the meanings of the words in this passage, not only is there a lot theologically that hangs on those words, um, there's also, there have been debates over um, points of the grammar and exact uh, definitions of some of the terms in, uh, in this paragraph since the days of the church fathers. Uh, when you get to the Reformation, uh, this passage is central to the Reformation and to the differences between Luther's understanding of justification and uh, the um, reigning understanding of justification in the Catholic Church at that time. Um, there have been continued debates after Luther up to the present day, and uh, at this point I have two different books written a couple decades apart on my bookshelf called Four Views and Five Views of Justification, and there's not even any overlap between the two, which means you have nine views. Um, and so, um, so that's today. And uh, having said that, I don't want to scare us, there's actually a great deal um, that is shared in common between all the perspectives, a great deal that is recognized in common by all of them. Uh, and it's in the nuances and in the details that they tend to differ from one another uh, at this point. Sometimes those differences can be pretty significant. Sometimes they're, they're actually fairly minor. Um, but uh, if I were to get into all of that, we could spend a year um, worth of Sunday school classes just talking about the history of what has been said about these verses. Um, but what I actually want to do today 
is give my reading of Paul and what I think Paul is saying as clearly as I possibly can. Um, everything that I've read from the church fathers to the reformers to scholars uh, in, uh, at the present uh, probably plays some part in my interpretation of Paul and how I understand Paul, what I understand him to be saying. Um, I've learned from all of those people. Um, but I'm not going to discuss them explicitly right now. Uh, if you want to know anything about um, what anyone along that long period of history has said about this, um, my email address is here, um, and I will respond to you if you write me. So, um, okay, in the meantime, there are, three past, there are at least three terms here that we absolutely have to deal with to make any sense of this passage. The three key terms that this passage revolves around are really the terms justified, um, shows up first there in verse 16, yet because we know that a person is justified by works of the law, um, or excuse me, uh, because we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Um, all three of the terms really show up in that verse, um, justified, works of the law, and faith in Christ. We have to have some understanding of what Paul means by all three of those things uh, to be able to make sense of this passage. Um, so, so the first term, let me take them one by one. The first term there, justify. Uh, what does this verb mean? What did it mean in ancient Greek? What does Paul likely mean by it here? Um, by the way, this verb, justify, in Greek, dikaio, uh, is closely related to uh, the noun dikaiosune, which we translate righteousness. I say that only because when you read it in English, uh, there's no obvious relationship between the words justify or justification and righteousness. In Greek, uh, there's a very plain, obvious relationship between them. Um, in short, righteousness is the noun that relates to the verb justify. Um, and uh, so, so to consider to justify in, uh, in ancient Greek, what's this mean? Uh, well, more or less to consider someone to be in good standing socially, if we were to use this in a social context, um, it would mean to consider someone to be in good standing. Or in a legal context, it could mean uh, to consider someone to be in the right. So if you had uh, sort of a civil lawsuit um, and, you, and you justified someone, you ruled them uh, to be dikaios, uh, righteous, what you're ruling is that they are in the right. Um, you're, you're ruling in their favor. Um, in, a, in a criminal context, uh, this could be the equivalent to finding someone innocent in a courtroom. Um, but, uh, but either, so either to consider someone to be in good standing socially or to consider someone to be in the right in a legal context. Um, what it does not mean uh, is, is to make righteous um, in the sense of actually transforming the person uh, inwardly. Um, and that is actually a point of distinction that comes up between uh, Luther and um, medieval Catholicism. Um, and one of the ways in which Luther differed from the church at that time is that the church at that time did, uh, the Catholic church at that time, and, and probably still to this day in most Catholic circles, uh, would consider um, justification to be a matter of not only uh, considering someone to be in good standing, but actually transforming the person inwardly and making them um, 
uh, morally righteous, you might say. Um, uh, Luther uh, disagreed on that point, um, among others. Um, and uh, so making a person righteous or we might say holy is um, more what scripture refers to as sanctification. Uh, it's not really part of what this verb ever meant in ancient Greek. There's actually not one single use of this verb to mean transforming a person's inward state in ancient Greek. Um, uh, so to justify in short is to offer a judgment that someone is acceptable or that someone is of worth. Uh, that someone has honor or value. Uh, but if we think of it in simple terms as um, considering someone to be uh, acceptable or of worth, that comes as close as I think we can come to, uh, you know, simply to understanding what justify means. When you place this word in a Jewish theological context, what this really amounts to is a statement of who is worthy of God's gift of salvation. And as we'll see in a minute, on what basis? Who is worthy and on what basis? Um, and so in that regard, justification is not strictly synonymous with salvation, but obviously closely related. We're talking about who is worthy of God's gift of salvation. Um, and, and so to be justified, as Paul says here in verse 16, is uh, to be justified or counted righteous is to be considered worthy of God's gift of salvation. And so that is the issue that we're talking about and the question, um, who is worthy and on what basis? Um, that's our first term. Next thing he says is a person is not justified by works of the law. What are works of the law? Um, well, the law here, uh, it's pretty much agreed by all scholars, refers to the Jewish law, the Torah. Um, in other words, um, the backbone of what it meant to live like a Jew. Um, and uh, it's pretty much been recognized by um, virtually all scholars since the church fathers that works of the law here then, works if, if the law refers to the Torah, works of the law refers to Torah observance as a way of life, uh, strict observance of the Torah as a way of life. The debates that have gone on around this term don't really have to do with whether or not it refers to Torah observance, um, but there are some debates about whether it refers only to specific parts of the Torah or to the whole Torah. Uh, I, without going into uh, an incredible amount of detail about it, um, I think the best arguments um, based on what Paul has to say in the next chapter of this letter are that it refers to the Torah as a whole, um, the law as a whole. So, uh, observance of the Torah as a way of life. Um, the, what it does not mean, um, and this is important, um, uh, works of the law is not strictly synonymous with good works. Um, and uh, this is sometimes misunderstood. Sometimes Luther is misunderstood as having said that works of the law uh, meant good works. Luther's actually explicit in his writings on Galatians that works of the law means Torah observance. Um, what Luther does next, though, is he applies it to his present setting and says if it can refer, um, you know, if, if even Torah observance, the Jewish law, keeping the Jewish law does not justify a person, then certainly no other good works do either. 
So um, there's a difference, though, between interpretation and application. As a matter of interpretation, Luther knows that this means Torah observance. He applies it in his context to good works in general. Um, so uh, Paul's problem then here, uh, what, is, what is the problem with works of the law? Well, his problem is not with the law per se. It's not that the law is bad. He's very clear about that in Romans 7, 7. Um, the, 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 law is, the law is not evil. The law is good. The law is holy. His problem is not with the law per se, but with Torah observance, with keeping the law as a way of seeking to be justified before God. Um, uh, in other words, as a way of trying to be considered worthy of salvation before God. In other words, the idea that uh, you could keep the law um, and just by observing the Torah, doing the Torah, um, you, will be, you will be worthy on that basis of salvation before God. That is what Paul denies, um, that, it is not, um, that it is not your moral accomplishments in keeping the law, it is not your ethnic status um, or religious status, for that matter, that uh, is based on your keeping of Torah um, that makes you worthy. None of these things are what make you worthy of God's gift of salvation. And so, uh, so his argument here is not that the law is bad, but simply that no one will be considered worthy of salvation based on any human achievement or status. No moral achievement, no ethnic status, Jew versus Gentile, none of that. No human quality or achievement or status is going to be the basis of what makes you worthy of salvation. Um, third term then, faith in Christ, which is the positive alternative that he offers to works of the law. We're not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, now, there have been debates, in fact, entire dissertations written about this term in recent years, um, and uh, without going full into them, I have uh, I've spent a lot of time with this term and have come to the conclusion that it is probably in this context best understood as trust in what God has done in Christ. Um, and. Uh, and so, one of the things that's important there, though, is understanding uh, that, that when Paul says faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ for Paul, I believe, is a shorthand for faith in what God has done in Jesus Christ. Um, in other words, including uh, his death and resurrection. This goes all the way back to Galatians 1.4, where he, where he defines God's grace as um, the gift of Jesus Christ for our sins. Um, and I think that here, too, uh, what God has done through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, is very much in view. Um, and the importance of faith, uh, this is a point that Luther drew out extensively. The importance of faith is not faith itself as though faith is some sort of magic substance, as though there's something magical about belief. Um, in our modern parlance, uh, our culture uh, does often seem to assign some sort of magical value to belief, um, believing in yourself or just believing in something. Um, uh, the importance of faith here for Paul uh, has nothing to do with faith itself, um, but rather 
the object of our faith, rather who or what we have faith in, namely what God has done in Jesus Christ. It is Christ and what he has done that makes faith matter. Faith on its own means nothing. Um, faith as, as, a, as an idea, faith as and, you know, believing just as, as an act, as something that we do, um, is, is meaningless apart from the thing that we have faith in, or in this case, the one that we have faith in. Um, and, and so what faith really is for Paul is, um, is our acceptance of God's gift, our response and, and how we accept God's gift um, uh, or his grace. Um, there's a quote from uh, the Paul scholar uh, John Barclay in his book, Paul and the Gift, that, um, that I think captures the essence of faith as Paul is describing it, or as Paul is talking about it, um, really well. Barclay writes, faith is not an alternative human achievement, nor refined human spirituality, but a declaration of bankruptcy, a radical and shattering recognition that the only capital in God's economy is the gift of Christ crucified and risen. The only thing that's going to count, the only thing that, um, that counts for worth before God uh, is, is the gift of Christ crucified and risen. And faith is our uh, admission that we are completely bankrupt apart from God's own gift uh, of Christ crucified and risen. Uh, one of the important things that he states here is that faith is not simply an alternative human achievement. It's not just another work, not anymore. Uh, to, to refer to faith as a response or an acceptance of God's gift is not to construe it as another work, not any more than grabbing hold of a life raft that, uh, that, or a life preserver that someone throws you is a work. You didn't really do much. You just accepted what was offered to you. Um, so this is not an alternative human achievement. Um, but the question then, when we put all this together, actually, um, Nathaniel, can you uh, transition slides real quick? So what I've done here is, um, based on the, this understanding of the three terms that we just went through, I've given a paraphrase of Galatians 2, 15 through 21. Um, by the way, John Barclay in, in the same book gives a paraphrase of his own, and mine is in some ways similar to his and in some ways different, but, um, but I... Uh, I'm a, a little bit indebted to him for that. So, um, anyway, uh, Galatians 2.15 through 21. If you, you have my translation, um, my, my formal translation that I've already given you, but if I were to go uh, Eugene Peterson, the message, it would look something like this. Um, look, Peter, you and I are Jews by birth, used to thinking of ourselves as distinct from Gentile sinners. But because we have come to know that a person is not considered worthy of salvation before God by observing the Torah, in other words, living like a Jew, even we have trusted in Christ so that we might be considered worthy on that basis and not by observing the law, since no one at all will be counted worthy by observing the law anyway. But if we seek to be justified in Christ and then turn around and act like our resulting behavior is sinful, like you did Antioch, Peter, then, we are saying, then are we saying that Christ led us into sin? Surely not. 
Only if I were to set up the law as the measure of righteousness or worth all over again would I make myself a transgressor by living non-Jewishly. Instead, the truth is, I have died to the law. It is no longer the ultimate criterion of worth for me in order to be alive to God. My old self is dead, crucified with Christ, and my new life is lived vicariously through the risen Christ, a life founded on trust in Christ and on his gift of himself for me. That is a gift from God I will not reject, for if the law remains the standard and means of righteousness, Christ died for nothing. Um, so you can see there the, the issue uh, that we're talking about of worth and the basis on which one is considered to be worthy um, coming out. In short, the question of justification that we see in these verses is what counts for good standing before God? And Paul's answer is absolutely nothing except trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ. You have no other worth, no, nothing else that you can say for yourself um, that counts for worth before God. Uh, the only thing that counts is trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ, which is, um, as Paul will say in the conclusion of this letter, to make us into new creations, um, something that we would be completely powerless to do on our own if we tried. Um, new creations who live out of Christ's own death and resurrection, which is what we see toward the conclusion of this passage. Um, as Paul articulates, or articulates things here, it's not just Christ's death that, that is vicarious for us. It is also his life, also his resurrection. And by trust in his death and resurrection, we live out of both. We live out of uh, the, the life of the risen Christ as well. Um, and it becomes the foundation of our new life. Um, and so I want to go through some implications here and then hopefully leave some time for questions. Um, some of the basic implications of what Paul has said here in these verses are that, uh, number one, uh, no human standard of worth, whether ethnic, as in Jew versus Gentile, or moral, or social, or intellectual, or anything else, means anything at all before God. You and I have no human quality whatsoever that would obligate God to grant us salvation. There is nothing that I can say for myself based on um, my, my intrinsic qualities like my, my ethnicity or, or anything else, um, or, or my social status, or um, my intellect, or my achievements in life, my moral accomplishments, um, even how well I've kept the law. None of this. None of this obligates God to grant me salvation. Um, none of this uh, either uh, actually deals with my sin. Um, Christ deals with that by making me a new creation. Um, but I have no human quality, nothing that I can say for myself before God that would obligate him to grant me salvation. What this means then is that you are either justified as a gift or in other words, by grace from God, or not at all. It's either a gift or it's nothing. So what this means then is that no one has any bragging rights over anyone else. 
uh, it, it in effect puts us all on one and the same playing field. If we are all uh, if, if we are all uh, equally devoid of anything that we can say before God to obligate Him to show us, and, and to, to show us favor, uh, then it means that we are all in one and the same position. Um, we, the, the playing field has been leveled. Um, and uh, if none of us have bragging rights before God, then none of us have bragging rights over one another. And there is no basis on which I can say to another person, I'm worth more than you or in which they can say to me, I'm worth more than you. Um, and if we act then like human qualities or distinctions of any kind do matter, then we are in fact rejecting the grace of Christ, as Paul says in 1.6, or rejecting, nullifying the gift of God, as he says in 2.21. If we imagine that we are worth more than someone else, we reject the gospel. If we imagine that someone else is worth more than we are, we forget the gospel. Instead, we are all one and the same unworthy recipients of God's gift, which also means his love. In place of any measure of human, uh, any human measure of worth in this passage stands God's love. See, we, it, this all prompts us at some point probably to ask, uh, so if we're, if we're unworthy, why does he do it? Um, and the answer that Paul gives in verse 20 is quite simply his love. Um, he says, in the life I now live, I live by faith, that is faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Loved me and gave himself for me are closely paired um, in Paul's in Paul's thinking. Um, and, and so, it, sometimes as, as Protestants, we can be very good um, at, at grasping our unworthiness. Um, sometimes we can grasp it a little bit too well, because while Paul does say on the one hand, you have no inherent human quality that grants you worth before God, there's a flip side to that. If we ask why God would extend such a gift to creatures with nothing to commend themselves, Paul has an answer. It's the Son of God who loved me. Um, so to say that we have no inherent value to show for ourselves or to offer God for our salvation is not to say that we are actually worth nothing to Him. Instead, the gospel is that we are worth everything to Him quite simply because He loves us and for no other reason at all. Whatever human standards of worth we might have clung to are replaced by the simple fact of God's love. And so our worth ends up being a matter of God's love and not any characteristic or achievement of ours. Um, if you can go one more slide, Nathaniel. Tim Keller captures this essential thought uh, pretty nicely in one of his more famous quotes. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In a sense, that is what the doctrine of justification, as Paul has outlined it here, amounts to. Um, and that is where I'm going to end for right now and open up the floor for questions. So we have about six minutes. Yes.
And, um, and so, so again, I, I don't think that Paul sees anything wrong with um, obedience to the law per se. And if you're a Jew, I think that he would probably say, um, based on his own behavior, um, that it's good to it's good to keep the Torah as as Jews were commanded to do. Um, uh, he's not okay with imposing that on Gentiles as though it matters um, for your acceptance in God's family. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's probably the best I can do with that right at the moment. But, um, thanks. Uh, we probably have time for one more question. Yes, go ahead. Famously, James says we're justified by works, but not by faith alone. So is he using those words slightly differently? Yes, uh, great, great point. So one of the really crucial distinctions here is uh, in Galatians and in Romans, when, we, when you jump over to Romans, um, Paul is very, uh, he's using the phrase, the very specific phrase, works of the law, uh, which, as I said here, um, everyone since the church fathers has agreed refers to Torah observance. Uh, when James writes, one of the interesting things is that James doesn't use the phrase works of the law. He just uses the phrase works. James probably does mean good works and is probably not talking about Torah observance. So that's one crucial difference. They're actually not using exactly the same terms. Um, they're close, and I think there is a relationship there. Um, in fact, I have a suspicion in my mind um, that James... James knows what Paul has been saying, and he wants to clear up a misunderstanding. Um, but, uh, but what we will see before Galatians is over, too, is that while Paul, uh, Paul disavows any notion that your works are what make you worthy, um, uh, as a, uh, worthy of God's salvation, worthy before God. Um, in other words, there's no, no thought in Paul of earning your salvation, um, through works, uh, he does, on the flip side, have uh, a notion that God's grace transforms us and that we ought to work out of the grace that God has shown us, and those works should be there. And if they are not, uh, we'll see before uh, the end of Galatians, um, Paul seems to say if those works are not there, then most likely the faith is not there either. Um, and that actually puts him very close to James. Uh, so they're, uh, they're using some different phrasing, but I think they're actually much closer to each other than, um, than it might initially appear on the surface. So, um, uh, okay, need to go ahead and end there, but thank you all. And we'll pick up next time and see, starting in chapter three, how Paul starts to work out the implications of everything he said here. So.